Blog Talk Radio. The Four Persons, Inc. is a federally registered and licensed 501c3 charity. Any use of any of our content without our permission is prohibited by law. Our purpose is evangelization, education, and social action. Please go to our website at thefourpersons.com or our blog site at thefourpersons.net to make your tax-deductible donation by credit or debit card. You can also send a check to The Four Persons, Inc., P.O. Box 11214, Manassas, Virginia, 20113. To contact us, send us an email at email at thefourpersons.com. Listening to the Luke Haskell Show on the Four Persons Network. Luke takes a deep dive every show into history, theology, and scripture. If you want to truly be educated, make way for the hammer of heretics himself, ladies and gentlemen, Luke Haskell. Well, ladies and gentlemen, this is the first Monday of what promises to be just an amazing liturgical year for the four persons apostolate. And it also looks to be the second to last episode. If uh, I've got this figured out right, it'll be the second to last episode in this series on the Gospel of Matthew that me and Luke started way back in September. And uh, what a what a tremendous journey it's been. But we got a couple of little items that we got to get out of the way as we start. Now, Luke, I normally ask you to end the episode with a prayer. Tonight, I'm going to ask you to start it with one. We've got an urgent message from our friend Dave Armstrong. I'll read it as it's written, urgent prayer request, possible cancer in a one-year-old boy. My friend Theo McManigal asked me to share this. Please pray. Hello, friends. My one-year-old son, Teddy, was brought to the hospital on Wednesday of last week. It was discovered that he has a growth in his collarbone spreading to his lung. We are worried but hopeful and still waiting for tests to confirm for us if it is cancer or not. I would be eternally grateful for your prayers. For him and for us, I would also be grateful to any priest reading this who could celebrate Mass, Divine Liturgy for him. Lord Jesus, have mercy and grant healing to your servant, Teddy. To all of you out there listening, all of you who support the four persons, I ask you to raise this little boy up in prayer and to the family. And um, Luke, would you lead us in a prayer for that intention, please? Why don't we go to our greatest intercessor, uh, our spiritual mother, and say, Hail Mary. 
Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now at the hour of our death. Amen. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now at the hour of our death. Amen. Uh, we just ask that Mary intercedes and uh, protects uh, Teddy and, and his family and gives them the grace they need to get through this. Amen. And speaking of our greatest intercessor, the Blessed Mother, in this Advent season, I have something that I need to address. And it is absolutely driving me crazy. We go through this every year for the last few years. And I'm going to let our recent guest, Enoch, answer the question. The question that keeps coming up over and over again. This is Enoch, and the name of the song is Yes, She Did. The mother of God, bloodline queen from the line of David, queen of martyrs, sign upon you the heart, and we call her the mediatrix of our places. Then Mary, no one, no dirty place, and the GC Christ greater than Eve. Change position with Lucifer and greater degrees. Unlike our first mother, she was never deceived. Yeah. By my head into the manger, God in the army surrounded by angels. Chosen from the side and she highly favored at the feet of the cross on the lake before our Savior. Virgin birth, pure immaculate conception, infused grace, created imperfection, new description. She paid close attention, spouse of the Holy Ghost. You think she didn't know? Yes, she did. get that out of the way. She knew, okay? <laughs> How are you doing tonight? I hope that came over. Did you hear that? Yeah, I heard it. I heard it. <laughs> Luke? Yeah, I heard, I heard it. Lose Luke? Did you Luke, hear, can you hear me? Did you hear me? Do you hear me? Uh, Luke, are you there? Do you hear me? Hello? Ah, I got you now. Hello. For some reason. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the technology is just feeding us tonight, isn't it? 
<laughs> did that, I could hold the song come over my the, ear for two hours. <laughs> uh, did the song come over the airwaves? Yeah, it did. Okay, good. All right. So she knew, we know, and now we can move on with the rest of the show. <laughs> so we're getting into um, the chapter. Now, I specifically said at the beginning of this show, um, way back in September, that you know I don't think you can do an honest reading of the Gospel of Matthew um, and still hold on to a Protestant ideology. Matthew 25, the first of the two chapters that we're going to cover tonight, is the chapter that I consider to be Protestant sola fide uh, argumentation. But uh, I want to let you get us kicked off. Yeah, and uh, we're going to go we're going to go pretty deep into this, and we're going to look at even you know specific words that really create you know uh, an incredible enlightenment of the mind. When when we do, and uh, you'll see it as we as we approach it. But uh, yeah, we're getting close to the Last Supper, and uh, Jesus is uh, preparing uh, his apostles, and he's preparing us and teaching us how to prepare. And uh, that's what he's continuing to do in uh, Matthew twenty five one through thirteen. And we'll go ahead and read that. Then shall the kingdom of heaven be like to ten virgins, who, taking their lamps, went out to meet the bridegroom and the bride. And five of them were foolish and five wise. But the five foolish, having taken the lamps, did not take oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with the lamps. And the bridegroom, carrying, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight there was a cry made. Behold, the bridegroom cometh. Go ye forth to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. The wise answered, saying, Lest perhaps there be not enough for us, and for you, go ye rather to them that sell and buy for yourselves. Now whilst they went to buy the whilst they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and they that were ready went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. But at last came also the other virgins, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, saying, Amen, I say to you, I know you not. Watch ye therefore, because you know not the day nor the hour. Now, Matthew continues here from the theme of the last chapter. Of course, it was members of the Catholic Church who created the chapter and verse for Scripture much later. It was a Catholic cardinal's name at Langdon and Santa Carl who mm-hmm. did so, and this does not take place until the 13th century. So these uh, scriptures, you know, just consider them as just flowing together from 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 one example to the other in, in his parables. So we're we're continuing to discuss the second coming and the awards for the faithful who lived in charity, which in its in, in its simplest form is is being Christ man, uh, the being an extension of Christ um, among uh, those on earth. So. 
uh, 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 one of the phrases we hear is Christ has no hands now, but yours. And Christ said, the least you do to my brother that you do unto me, which we will get into in verse 40 here. So again, here in the image of the lamps, always needing to be prepared. We see a call to keep the state of our souls always prepared. So like we, we talked about in the last chapter, this does not only apply to the parousia, but also every person that dies throughout time before the parousia. Although we have all become, become the bride of Christ through a baptism into the flesh of Christ as part of the promise of Abraham fulfilled, the imagery here shows a revelation of this fact. Jesus said, in the end, all will be, all will be revealed. So as every person living sees the coming of the groom, the world will also see the bride, the church embracing the groom as a virgin prepared. <laughs> and book of Hebrews tells us, so also Christ was offered once to exhaust the sins of many. The second time he shall appear without sin to them that expect him unto salvation. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and they that were ready went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut, is what Matthew says. So when the bridegroom comes, those who have hearts prepared and who are always vigilant are ready, and those who did not live a pure life, not always following truth as it's revealed to the soul, are shut out because if truth is revealed to the soul and you do not follow that truth revealed, then you sin against the Holy Spirit. Uh, it's a gift of truth that's being revealed to you. Last week in our, our review, we, we talked about this new age of the new covenant, which created a different way of thinking, uh, where the prophecy was fulfilled that the law would be written on our hearts. And Scripture enforces this truth. James says, to him, therefore, who knoweth to do good and does it not, to him it is sin. And, of course, Paul tells us, for when you were the servants of sin, you were free men to justice. What fruit, therefore, you had you then in those things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of them is death. But now, being made free from sin and become servants to God... You have your fruit unto sanctification and the end life everlasting. For the wages of sin is death, but the grace of God, life everlasting in Christ Jesus our Lord. Of course, it is our baptism that freed us from original sin as the first grace given freely, which created our redemption and original sanctification and sealing into the promise that Abraham fulfilled as a chosen people, the holy nation, the royal priesthood. So for those who are of the age of reason, also active sin up to the point of baptism. The law written on our hearts is grace given freely, as opposed to the Mosaic law of rule, fear, and temporal punishment that was given to Jews only of hardened hearts. And through the cross and blood, even confession and all the sacraments are just So God established a, a systematic theology, I guess that's one way of putting it, as the way of the narrow road. And the word the way was not the name of the church, but it was the narrow road to keep us from Satan's preternatural level of deceptions. 
the early church understood that the way included confession. In uh, the letter of Barnabas dated about 74 AD, we read, you shall confess your sins. You shall not go to prayer with an evil conscience. This is the way of light. In the Didache, the first catechism of the Catholic Church, written over 200 years before the church decided what would compose the New Testament uh, around 70 AD, we read, confess your sins in church and do not go up to your prayer with an evil conscience. This is the way of life. So on the Lord's Day, it says, gather together, break bread, and give thanks after confessing your transgressions so that your sacrifice may be a pure one. And this is the way they lived. The way was actually a doctrine of faith. The way was the narrow road of transforming grace. Now, this is a sacrifice of a pure heart before participation in the altar of heaven and earth. Paul says we have an altar at which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat of. Well, uh, we need to use reason when we're looking at these verses, and we need to think like a first century Jewish convert. So why couldn't the Levitical priests and Pharisees partake of the Christian altar? Because they're not cleansed through baptism in the blood, nor through baptism, and they did not uh, enter the chosen people, the holy nation, the royal priesthood. So there's no receiving the graces of, of the true Passover before the Father without it, and you're cut off from these graces through mortal sin. There is no removal of mortal sin, which removes sanctifying grace without confession, because this is part of the way. This is part of actually the Christianity God established. So Jesus told us to be holy, as he is holy. And how can you focus on what is holy outside of the sacramental life? Outside of the sacramental life and honor the saints, you have no focus on what is holy. So you don't find anything in the world tangible, holy. Uh, uh, we uh, the a type of a Gnostic practice because they don't have the the holy images, the holy the understanding, the faith of what is holy, like the Eucharist. And this goes against our, our very nature. I mean, Jesus did not need to put mud in the eyes of a blind man and tell him to wash, but he used the material to show the spiritual. This is basically the definition of sacrament. The cross is physical. We hear in Scripture, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy is prudence. Well, God gave the Jews the temple and temple sacrifices as they focus on the holy. Uh, do you think he'd remove what is holy from the new covenant? Wouldn't he raise the types to the heavenly realities? God told the Jews that the bread of the presence must always be placed before him for one main reason. It is fulfilled in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist prophecies in Malachi 1.11. That it would always be before him. In addition to the Eucharist being the true Passover for the general redemption of the world, it is a path to holiness, which we come to with a discipline of a sacrifice of pure heart due to our love for the gift of the cross and through a practice of humility in, in, in confession even. And Paul says, consider us as dispensers of the mysteries of God. And Irenaeus, he's a disciple of Polycarp, who's a disciple of John the Apostle. Irenaeus said all the apostles were priests. And, of course, we go through Scripture and the etymology and show the priesthood there. Uh, 
but for mystery, we also get the etymology of mysterium, sacramentum, sacrament. So what Paul is saying here is consider us priests as dispensers of the sacraments of Christ. Paul says, therefore, thou offer thy gift at the altar, and there thou remember that thy brother hath anything against thee. What altar is this? It is the altar where the Eucharist is presented to the Father. And before we bring the gift of the bread and wine to the priest to be consecrated through the Holy Spirit, we should need make amends and forgive those who have trespassed against us and come to the altar with the sacrifices of pure heart. And we have this opportunity, we have this narrow road uh, to be those virgins who always have their lamps ready because we are living in the sacramental life. We are living the way that God established. Right. You know, Luke, I said at the beginning of this series, and we started this series way back, like Labor Day, (laughs) September. I said way back then, that it's impossible to give an honest reading to the Gospel of Matthew and remain a Protestant. Now, this is especially true with chapter 25, because in it are contained three specific lessons by Jesus that show how faith works and how grace interacts with faith. And I love how Matthew stacks them together, Luke. The first story that he tells explains how perseverance is impossible without the constant obtaining of grace. And the image of grace as the oil that lights our lamps, it's a beautiful image. So the image of a once-received grace is impossible to reconcile with the peril of the, of the ten virgins. So this first teaching shows the absolute necessity of receiving grace. Now, Let's counter this with what Luther taught, what the Protestants taught. Luther actually said once that that God's grace or God's salvation is like a blanket of snow over a pile of dung. (laughs) He actually used that image. Uh, And and it's this, this image of God covering over our sins, Jesus covering over our sins, uh, so the Father can't see them. So it looks like he's playing hide and seek with the father. It's a, it's an absolute joke, folks. It's an absolute joke because God's mercy, God wants to show us his mercy, but his mercy must be reconciled with his justice. Now, the only way that God's mercy can be reconciled with his justice is through repentance. And repentance Luke speaks to something greater than just sorrow for our sins. If you're sorry for your sin, but you keep committing them, you haven't learned anything. And so the they they try to they they try to come up with this with this false dichotomy of how we believe that we can overcome our sins through our own efforts. Well, it it. We don't believe that, and that's where we get into the second parable, which you'll cover shortly. And the second parable shows that it is both possible and mandatory that we cooperate with that grace. So the first parable shows that the grace is absolutely necessary for perseverance, and the second parable shows that we can and must cooperate with that grace, and this is what we call synergy. 
And finally, later in the chapter, you'll close with the lesson that the measure of how we love God, the measure of how we respond that grace is by loving him through his creation. And we'll have more on that as, as, as we go. But I just, I just love how Matthew stacks these three stories in succession so that they build on each other. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. And it's, and it's all paths to holiness. And God himself says, be holy for I am holy. He calls us to holiness. And, and they're missing so much of what he gave us to focus on as holy. But it's, 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 it's a pretty tough, tough faith. I mean, to actually believe God's words, this is my body. You know, and, and, and once you do that, you know, you're under obedience to the faith of, of the church. And people just don't want to get there. But a lot of this is caused by the false understanding of works, too. So I'll get I'll give the benefit of the doubt there. And our Protestant brothers and sisters fell into such a diabolical error that many now look at religion and ritual as, as being a creation of man, while they ignore the religion and ritual Jesus established through an agonizing death on the cross. That is, it, it's all across the New Testament. It, it's right in their face. And it has to be just simply ignored. So I'm speaking to our Protestant brothers and sisters here right now, and, and I want to take a slight detour, but let's do this. I'm going to address some things in the form of a question. And uh, for our Protestant brothers and sisters, I want you to pray about it and answer the questions in your heart. So when Paul says we are saved by faith, not works of the law, He's not referring to works of charity, which in its purest form is being Christ a man, living the Beatitudes through being open to grace, living as sheep, not goats. This is not the law of works for Jews only. This is living as a Christian, correct? So he's not referring to works of the religion and ritual of the new covenant, which he calls us to obedience to the faith in that we see being lived all across the New Testament. And in the earliest historical records of Christianity, I ask again, correct. Paul writing to the church living the religion ritual tells us for how long we must be committed to showing the death of the Lord to the Father when he wrote, for as often as you shall eat this bread and drink this cup, you will show the death of the Lord until he comes again. So this is part of living the new covenant fulfilling Christian obligations as the chosen people, the holy nation, the royal priesthood. Now, do you think that a member of the royal priesthood, as a member, you have no obligation to perform the covenant requirements of that priesthood with the ordained? So, again, in doing this, this is not the law of the works for Jews only. So, He's also not referring to the Ten Commandments uh, when he says that uh, uh, we are saved by faith, not works. He's not referring to Ten Commandments and in, and in fact shows the fulfillment of the reasons for the commandments when he says, love works no evil to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. So this is not the law of works for Jews only. So what are the only works Paul teaches that Christians – of course, including baptized Pharisees, who were the Judaizers, the, the reason why he addressed this type of works. So 
so what is the only works Paul teaches that Christians are not responsible for? Who boasted about keeping the works? What is the law of works? The only works Paul says we are not responsible is literally the law of works. It's a specific law of works. Paul writes in Romans 3.27, where is then thy boasting? It is excluded by what law of works? No, but by the law of faith. The law of works is actually the second legislation of Mosaic law, including the ceremonial and ritual law that God made him impossible to further keep because of the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Now, the law of faith is also the sacramental life and believing that they are truly physical signs that give spiritual grace. The law of faith is what Paul calls us to when he said it is his job to bring about obedience to faith. It is our narrow road of transforming grace as the normative process of salvation. It's a discipline for the soul and our, and, and our souls and follow nature. So what did Paul mean when he said you are saved by grace through faith and not works that any man may boast? Who is doing the boasting? The laws written on our hearts as opposed to the second legislation is grace given freely. So the boast of the baptized Pharisees was believing they are closer to God than the baptized Gentiles in the church were because they kept the law of works. And again, this is not works in general. We already showed how thinking this makes no sense because we covered all different works, and we are responsible for those works. So it, it contradicts God's call to be sheep and not goats to even think this way. So let's look at a historical reference of what the early church understood as the law of works or the second legislation. And we find this in the Discalia, written or added to around 230 AD. Many of the ancient documents are hard to date because of additions written at later, later times. So we'll read here. Him they denied and said, we have no God to go before us. And they made them a molten calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to a graven image. Therefore, the Lord was angry in his hot anger with the mercy of his goodness. He bound them in the second legislation and laid heavy burdens upon them as a hard yoke upon their neck. And he says now no longer as thou shalt make uh, as formerly, but he said make an altar and sacrifice continuously as though he had need of these things. Wherefore, he laid upon them continual burnt offerings with the necessity and caused them to abstain from meats by means of distinction of meats. For from that time were animals discerned, clean and unclean, flesh. From that time were separations and purifications of baptism and sprinklings. From that time were sacrifices and offerings and tables. From that time were burnt offerings and oblations and showbread. And the offering of sacrifices and firstlings and redemptions and he goats for sin and vows and many other things marvelous. For because of manifold sin, there was laid upon them customs unspeakable, but by none of them did they abide. But they again provoked the Lord, for the second legislation was imposed for the making of the calf and for idolatry. But you through baptism have been set free from idolatry and from the second legislation, 
which was imposed on account of idols. For the gospel, through the gospel, he renewed and fulfilled and affirmed the law. That is the charity in the law. That is the law fulfilled. But the second legislation, he did away with and abolished. So the gospel affirmed the law of unconditional love through contemplation of the gift of the cross and being open to grace through humility. It released the Jews from the second legislation to the cross by way of baptism into, into the body of Christ, which removed the curse of the failure to keep the law, uh, washing away uh, the past sins, washing away the curse which in, in its redemption, sanctification, and sealing into the promise that Abraham fulfilled as the chosen people, the holy nation, the royal priesthood. It was Jesus who took on their curse, to which in failing in the law, the penalty was death. Therefore, through baptism, the promise made to Abraham in God's hesed, as we discussed all the way at the beginning, his steadfast love was fulfilled in entrance into the body of Christ, the Catholic Church. Right. The, the Protestant soteriology, they're, they're, they're stuck in this false dilemma, Luke. And 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 it all boils down to they posit that God either pays our debt in full externally, or we're attempting to pay it ourselves. Well, this is the dichotomy that they describe as faith versus works. By doing exactly what you what you're saying, by falsely categorizing what Paul is referring to as works. Paul is referring to a specific law of works that was imposed as a punishment essentially and yes one of the arguments that they that that they use is that we try to add to the finished work of christ well in their paradigm calvary is the means by which jesus externally applies salvation to us the truth of an understanding is that in the catholic position is that calvary is the treasury of merit. It's this treasury of spiritual currency, if you will, grace, by which God redeems through us and with us. So salvation is not something that is imposed upon us. Salvation is something that is done through us so that God does not declare the unjust man just. God makes the unjust man just and look at it my own self my own stubborn will my own wretched heart it's the greater miracle <laughs> that god can save me through me is is the greater miracle uh and it's the only way that god's justice can be uh, reconcile with his mercy in a way that also respects our free will, that he created us with free will. So we, you know, Augustine once said, without God, I can't. But without me, God won't. And that is, that's, that sums it up right there, Luke. Yeah, and it's... Uh... It comes back to humility, humility, humility. I mean, Jesus said, my flesh is true food. We believe him. He's God. 
I mean, it's just, you have to look at it as as simple as that. God's ways are not our ways. And once you believe those words, everything else opens up to you. The whole New Testament begins to open up. But like Augustine even, even described, he says you actually need faith to understand. So you have to pray for that faith and to believe God's words and have that humility to die to false preconceptions and to accept God's words in order to understand. Yeah, and I, and I think the biggest challenge for faith that I, I've learned in my own personal life is the biggest challenge of faith is when God doesn't answer the prayer or, or, or seems to not answer the prayer or doesn't answer the prayer in the way that we think that he should. When God allows the tragedy to happen, permits the tragedy to happen, that's when that's when real faith kicks in because some people have this idea that if, if you have faith, God will work everything out the way that you want it to. Well, no. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Sometimes the tragedy happens. Sometimes the family member dies. Sometimes you lose the job. Sometimes the storm uh, comes and wipes your house out. Um, and, and, the, you know, the greater miracle is that, that people miss. God can save you from the storm or he can save you through the storm. And sometimes the greater people that, that you know, I, I can say in my own personal life, yeah, I've had in my personal life and in my family life, I've had all kinds of of tragedies and setbacks and, and, and difficulties. Um, but you know, I had a I had a priest one time, and in a in a bit of feeling sorry for myself, I, I confronted this priest and said, "Where was God in the middle of all this? Where was He?" And the priest looked at me and said, "Do you really believe that you have walked through all of this under your own strength?" And I said, "There's there's no way that that's where He was." Sometimes God is there holding you up through this unbelievable storm that you're facing, and that's the miracle. So you get the miracle, it's just you get it in a way that you didn't expect. (laughs) Yeah, and the thing is, you know, we really can't even place the concept of, of eternity you know, in, in our minds, and come up with anything that's even even close to it. But God's in a state of eternity, and uh, Scripture tells us to, that, that God chastises those who He loves. So why would He do that? For one main reason, to you know, uh, purify our hearts, and if we don't experience, you know. Uh, sadness and you know tragedy and things like that in our lives then we don't experience the 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 humility needed to really look at them through god's eyes and not our our eyes the other thing luke is that if we never experience suffering then what possible frame of reference can we have to understand what Christ did for us. If we if we don't know what suffering feels like, 
how can we have any kind of frame of reference for the suffering that he that he endured for us? Yeah, 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 exactly. So we're on Matthew twenty-five, fourteen through thirty. You know, go ahead and read. For even as a man going into a far country called his servants and delivered to them his goods, and to one he gave five talents, and to another two, and to another one, to everyone according to his proper ability, and immediately he took his journey. And he that had received the five talents went his way and traded with the same and gained other uh, other five. And in like manner, he that had received the two gained uh, other two. But he that received the one going his way digged into the earth and hid his Lord's money. But after a long time, the Lord of those servants came and reckoned with them. And he that had received the five talents coming brought other five talents, saying, Lord, thou didst deliver to me five talents. Behold, I have gained uh, another five over and above. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Because thou hast been faithful over a few things, I will place thee over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. And he also that had received the two talents came and said, Lord, thou deliverest two talents to me. Behold, I have gained another two. And his Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Because thou hast been faithful over a few things, I will place thee over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. But he that had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I know that thou art a hard man. Thou reapest where thou hast not sown, and gatherest where thou hast not, not strewed. And being afraid, I went and hid thy talent in the earth. Behold, here thou hast that which is thine. And his Lord answered, said to him, Wicked and slothful servant, thou knewest that I reap where I sow not, and gather where I have not strewed. Though oughtest therefore to have committed my money to the bankers, and at my coming I should have received my own with usury. Take ye away, therefore, the talent from him, and give it to him that hath ten talents. For to every one that hath shall be given, and he shall abound. But from him that hath not, that also which he seemeth to have shall be taken away. And the unprofitable servant cast ye out into the exterior darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So, again, we see a warning when it comes to the state of preparation. The story of the virgin focused more on the state of the eternal soul. While this story appears to focus more on the gifts of God that we, as Christians, we are called to use to, to do God's will. So, many years ago, I, I asked God for wisdom. I then began to study intensely, and as I studied, you know, the seamless fabric of Scripture began to be revealed to my soul. Uh, this image culminates in, in the Holy Mass being the true Passover for the general redemption of the world, as, as, as I've said over and over again. But I, I came to the belief that this understanding is the clearest path to getting people to see God's truth and the reason for an authoritative church as a reestablished kingdom of David which is needed to preserve the Passover until the end of time. 
And because of this, the, the church must be a teaching authority, therefore backed up by the Holy Spirit in a way that cannot teach error. So with the master giving me you know, these talents uh, per se, which I consider to be much more than you know, he had 10 talents, uh, I'm compelled to express what I know to others. And yet the more gifts we are given, the more that is required of us in our, in our position in the kingdom of God, which is, is actually in the Son of Man, in the mystical body of Christ. So in the, in the kingdom, we are given different graces, yet we are all called to use these graces to support the kingdom. And those who are given much are given more through supporting the kingdom of heaven. Those who are given less but do not support the kingdom are, are, are cast out. So this is one who is, is a, a useful servant, who doing nothing to assist the master, even if he was given the grace to see and, and live the gifts of the sacramental life. Uh, again here, and this, is, this is not faith, faith, faith alone. It's far from it. Mm-hmm. So, Luke, I want to use an, an, an interesting analogy here because it's, it's, it's very uh, – strange how language changes over time and things are given different meanings, words are given different meanings according to an improper original understanding of what those meant. A perfect example, the word indulgence. Now, you ask a person what what an indulgence is, well, that's, that's basically permission to enter into something that's pleasurable, to indulge in something. Uh, to indulge in a, a, a gallon of ice cream, <laughs> okay? <laughs> but, but that's a gallon? Not the word, <laughs> right? But that might but be that's not, not pleasurable after after a few hours, <laughs> right? But but that's not what the word originally meant. The word did right. not mean a permission, basically permission uh, to to uh, partake in sin. The word actually meant uh, a release from punishment that was due. Uh, uh, Basically, a mercy is basically what an indulgence is. Well, the the word talent is another word that's, that's changed over time, and it's changed specifically because of this parable. You ask people what a talent is. Well, a talent is is an ability. God, God, God blessed this person with these talents. He blessed this person with those talents. And so when you confront somebody with this parable, that's what they say. Well, this is referring to the abilities, the talents that God gave people. Well, that's not what the parable says at all. Let me repeat verse 15. And to one he gave five talents, and to another two, and to another one, to everyone according to his proper ability. So talents are not abilities that God gives us, but it's something that he gives us according to our ability. The analogy that I want to use is is a, a, a weightlifter. So according to the Protestant understanding of this parable, the talent would be God is giving me the ability to lift the weight. And a proper understanding is God is giving me the weight in order to increase my ability. And that's how 
weightlifting works, and that's how synergistic grace works. To he who has, more will be given. To he who does not have, it will be taken from him, even which he does have. Again, going back to the analogy of a weightlifter, if you're lifting weights, if you're working out with weights, and you stop doing it, not only will your strength not grow, but you'll lose even the strength that you do have, you'll start to regress. That analogy is apropos here because that's what this is about. And you cannot reconcile this parable with Protestant soteriology. You can't. It's impossible. God gives us grace, and he expects us to do something with it. Now, I want to ask you one question, Luke. Answer me honestly. Of the three servants in this parable, which is the one that fits the description of someone who believes in faith alone? Which of the three servants? Well, it would be the last one who didn't use didn't use the gifts given, didn't uh, you know, didn't develop that charity and that love, but just kept it you know in a hole, <laughs> just buried it. That's that's yeah. the that's your faith alone belief, and. So, you know, so let's take the Protestant argument and turn it right back around. Well, you're trying to add to the works of, of Christ. You're trying to add to the finished work of Christ. No. God gave me the currency. <laughs> he gave me the money. That's your freely given okay. grace. He gave it to me. It was a gift. I did nothing to earn it. Je- Jesus yeah, doesn't say that. Was, uh, go ahead. Jesus didn't say that any of these people earned or deserved the talents of gold that they were given. But this is this is where they make the mistake, Luke. They make the mistake of meaning of, of, of they understand that a free gift is without cost, but it's not without without condition. So just because I didn't pay for it doesn't mean I'm not responsible to do something with it. It's like a it's like a father that buys his kid a new car. The kid couldn't afford the car, but the father doesn't expect him to, um, you know, smash the accelerator and go smash the car into the police station. That's <laughs> not what you know. That would be an abuse of the gift that was given. So. How ungrateful are we? What a, what a uh, disrespect to God we would show if we take this freely given grace and 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 bury it under under the ground like this like this unfaithful servant did. I believe it was I think it's James said charity covers a multitude of sins. So the gift is being able to express God's love through us as charity. And as the gift is given, as it is expressed, that is covering sins, which is the gift from God of those more talents. Mm-hmm. And we're going to see a lady later on tonight that was a perfect personification of that, that uh, a person whose who's great love covered a multitude of sins. So that's in a preview of coming attractions. So <laughs> please okay. continue. Okay, we're at Matthew twenty-five thirty-one through 46. 
And when the Son of Man shall come in his majesty and all the angels with him, then shall he sit upon the seat of his majesty, and all nations shall be gathered together before him. And he shall separate them one from another, as the shepherd separateth the sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. Then shall the king say to them that shall be on his right hand, Come ye blessed of my father. Was that you the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world? For I was hungry, and you gave me to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me to drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. Naked, and you covered me. Sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then shall the just answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see thee hungry, and fed thee, thirsty, and gave thee drink? Or when did we see the stranger and took thee in, or naked and covered thee? Or when did we see thee sick or in prison and came to thee? And the king answered, shall say to them, and the king answered, shall say to them, Amen, I say to you, as long as you did it to one of these, my least brethren, he did it to me. Then he shall say to them also that shall be on his left hand, Depart from me, you cursed into everlasting fire, which are prepared for, for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me not to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me not to drink. I was a stranger, and you took me not in. Naked, and you covered me not. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also shall answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see thee hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick? Or in prison, and did not minister to thee. Then he shall answer them, saying, Amen, I say to you, as long as you did it not to one of these least, neither did you do it to me. And these shall go into everlasting punishment, but the just into everlasting life. Yeah, that's not faith alone. <laughs> yeah. So again, again, we see Jesus with authority as the Son of Man the physical manifestation of God in the flesh that we see in the book of Daniel. And another fascinating account of, of calling himself a son of man is uh, in the controversial John 6. Controversial simply, be, simply because Protestants can't believe it. In John's gospel, when the crowds could not accept God's words, that we must eat of his flesh and drink of his blood in order to have his life in us, in order for our physical bodies to be raised on the last day because of Christ being in them, uh, he responded, what if you were to see the Son of Man rise to where he was before? Then would you believe? Or then would you believe that my flesh is true food, my blood is true drink? Uh, what did they see at the beginning of Luke's book of Acts? They saw the Son of Man rise to where he was before to confirm that his flesh is true food, and his blood is true drink. <coughs> and at the Last Supper, he showed how this would become true. So the same Son of Man in Matthew's Gospels says, And when the Son of Man shall come in his majesty and all the angels with him, then shall he sit upon the seat of his majesty. So after giving examples of a spiritual preparation of the soul, he moves on onto the acts of that soul, which must be in transforming grace, living in uh, unconditional love through contemplation of the gift of the cross, 
he then gives specific examples of those who would be his uh, true sheep. He said, for I was hungry and you gave me to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me to drink. I was a stranger and you took me in naked and you covered me. And it's, we're, it's just, we're not saved by faith alone, people. James says even the devil believes, but uh, faith is a conduit through humility to lead to transforming grace through which we are saved. And in this transforming grace, being a sheep and not a goat, or works are not an afterthought due to faith, but living in transforming grace and an expression of unconditional love and a focus on, on holiness. Now, this unconditional love is a sign of transforming grace, and it is often accompanied in works. So Jesus says, be holy, for I am holy. And Hebrews tells us, follow peace and holiness with all men, without no man shall see God. So again, not faith alone. And the early church, you know, really had a clear understanding of this. Uh, Gregory uh, uh, Nyssa writes, Paul joining righteousness to faith and weaving them together, constructs of them the breastplate for the infantrymen, armoring the soldier properly and safely on both sides. A soldier cannot be considered safely armored when either shield is disjoint from the other. Faith without works of justice is not sufficient for salvation. Neither is righteous living secured in itself uh, of salvation if it is disjointed from faith. Uh, Cyprian, you then who are rich and wealthy, buy for yourselves from Christ gold purified in fire, for with your filth, as if burned away in the fire, you can be like pure gold if you are cleansed by almsgiving and by works of justice. Buy yourself a white garment so that although you had been naked like Adam and were formerly frightful and deformed, you may be clothed in the white garment of Christ. You're showing the baptism here, uh, redemption, original sin. So you who are a matron, rich and wealthy, anoint not your eyes, the antinomy of the devil, but with the salve of Christ, so that you may at last come to the God when you have merited before God, both by your works and by your manner of living. And this anointing is our confirmation. So I would ask our Protestant brothers, are, are you in agreement with Cyprian here? If you say no, then you're not in agreement with Peter in, in 1 Peter 4 either. Uh, I'll, I'll read it. For the time past is sufficient to have fulfilled the will of the Gentiles. For them who have walked in, in riotous lusts, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and unlawful worship of idols, wherein they think it strange um, that you run not with them into the same confusion of riotousness, speaking evil of you. Who shall render account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead? For this cause was the gospel preached also to the dead, that they might be judged indeed according to men in the flesh, but may live according to God in the spirit. But the end of all is at hand. Be prudent, therefore, and watch in prayer. But before all things, have a constant mutual charity among yourselves. For charity covereth a multitude of sins. That was Peter. So if charity covers a multitude of sins, and sins 
leads to death, then can you live a Christian, live as a Christian without living in charity, which is being Christ's man? And of course, to those who, who choose to live as goats by thinking faith is somehow separated from works, Jesus says, and these shall go into everlasting punishment, but the just into life everlasting. Uh, therefore, uh, considering this, it says, but since in the law no one is justified before God, it is evident that the just man lives by faith. It should be noted that he does not say that a man, a person, lives by faith, lest it be thought that he is condemning good works. Rather, he says the just man lives by faith. He, he implies thereby that whoever would be faithful and would conduct his life according to the faith can in no other way arrive at the faith or live in it except first he be a man of pure life coming up to the faith of cert- by certain degrees. And, of course, Justin uh, or uh, uh, Jerome is living the sacramental life. So, of course, this contradicts, you know, the, the, the Protestant talking points of verses taken out of context. Of, for there is there are none righteous, no, not one. Well, when Paul says that, he's talking about the fool who says in his heart, there is no God. He's quoting from the Old Testament, all right? The, the Bible tells us that, that Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous before God, blameless before God. The Bible tells us that Joseph was a righteous man because he was a righteous man, had sought to put uh, Mary away privately. So uh, James tells us that the prayer of a righteous man availeth much. But if you listen to Protestants, no, nobody's right, righteous, and all our works are filthy rags. The the Bible doesn't say that all our works are filthy rags. The Bible says that those that are done in hypocrisy are filthy rags. But you, you so you've got to get away there. Uh, you've got to go against their whole paradigm to understand this, this notion. And the way to do it is simply read the words of Christ. The just man will live by faith. The Bible says the just man will live by faith. So that proves two things. A man can be just, and it is by faith. So, again, just action, the way that a man lives, is directly connected to faith. Luke, what the Protestants are trying to do here is they're trying to separate the water from the wet. (laughs) That's what they're trying to do. The, the, the whole idea of faith without justice, faith without mercy, faith without charity, it, it's an illusion. How can you love God and hate him at the same time? You know, in a, in a lot of them, you know, uh, they have a love for God, and they acted out in charity. And they don't uh, – even though they're acting out in charity for the love of God – they still don't think it's necessary to do so, but it's the love of God that actually makes them act it out in charity. And there's a couple more verses on righteousness. Uh, uh, if your righteousness does not exceed that of the Pharisees, that you, then you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. And, you know, uh, it's uh, there's another one too. Uh, oh, I don't remember off the top of my head, <laughs> but it, it's the same thing. Uh, 
uh, uh, talks about uh, the righteous man being compared to the sinner or the unbeliever. You know, <laughs> so one who is righteous is one who focuses on his own concupiscence and fighting it instead of being a sinner. So the end of this lesson that we're on here is uh, uh, from Christ is mostly what we have already gone over. We're going to uh, go through it. Uh, Matthew 25, 41 to 46. We'll go ahead and read. So then he shall say to them also that shall be on his left hand, depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire, which was prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me to drink. I was a stranger, and you took me not in, naked, and you covered me not, sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also shall answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see thee hungry? or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, or not uh, ministering to you. So it should also be understood that these strong words are in a relation to the rear kicking Jesus gave to the Pharisees in the last chapter. Because all this would apply to their, their looking at the law and looking at the letter of the law instead of the spirit of the law. Right, exactly. And so we'll go and, ahead. And and, and the ahead. whole the whole thing is that they 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 just get this idea that it's formulaic, that it has to be somewhat formulaic, or uh, if we can't give them the formula, I, I mean, I, I don't know how many times I've had Protestants that have asked me this. Well, how many good works do you have to do to be saved? What is the number? <laughs> Okay, it's not like it's not God is it's transformation. <laughs> right, it's not God is not sitting up on a cloud with an abacus counting how many. Uh, but, but it's it, what it really is, is. It is the disposition of the heart, and even more important than the works themselves is the disposition of the heart. So, Jesus says. Jesus says. I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty and you didn't give me drink. I was naked and you didn't clothe me. And then when they when they ask him when, what does he say, Luke? He said, what you do to the least of my brothers, the least, the the lowest of the low, the the one the person that no one gives any regard to. That's the one who God wants to reach. That's the one who God wants to reach through you. It's so, a beautiful song by Michael Talbot, and it goes on. Christ has no hands now but ours, no feet but ours, no voice but ours. Right. It's what we do for the lost and the forsaken, the downtrodden, uh, you know, the person that's of no regard in the world's eyes. That person is of high regard, of priceless regard in God's eyes. And this idea that I love God, I serve God, I'm a, I'm a Christian, but I see that person and I walk right by him like they don't exist. 
that person becomes invisible to me? Well, think about that, folks. Think about this. Who, who just became invisible to you? Jesus said, what you do to the least of my brethren, you do to me. So it's... Yeah, it's, I, know it's that gets, I know that even gets tough sometimes because you, you, you can see people panhandling as you're driving down a street and you're, you're thinking in the back of your head, well, you know, they, they probably got a ton of money and they're driving, they're driving a Lexus somewhere because they're just making money. And some of them do, but most of them don't. And it's a, you know, it's, and you're doing it for the most who don't. Yeah, and it's not just it's not just the 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 panhandler on the street. It's the mm-hmm. it's the it's the person at work. I mean, when I yes. walk into a, a building at work, I treat the CEO and the janitor the same way, with the same respect yeah. and the same dignity. And 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 that's the way that it has to be because I don't see a janitor. I see a person made in the image and likeness of God. And this is what God told us. So it's it's not just an analogy. Jesus is not making a, 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 an analogy here. That's what needs to be understood. He's, he's not saying that, well, what you do to this person, it's kind of, sort of, kind of like you're doing it to me. He doesn't say that. What you do to this person, you do to me. You will be held personally accountable for what you do or you don't do to the least of the people that you come across. How do you reconcile that with faith alone? I, I don't I can't imagine the cognitive dissonance that goes on inside of the mind of a person that can reconcile that with, well, all I have to do is accept Jesus as my savior. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Now this next chapter is just it's really, you know, if you haven't heard these things before, it should really, you know, uh, create a, you know, an explosion of, you know, just imagery in, in your mind as we go through it. And we're at Matthew 26, 1 and 2. So, and it came to pass when Jesus had ended all these words, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days shall be the pass, and the Son of Man shall be delivered up to be crucified. Now, the word made flesh who dwelt among us, the word made flesh who established the Passover over 1,300 years later is now beginning to show the true meaning of the Passover. The true meaning of the lamb of sacrifice in, in his very flesh. After enraging the Pharisees of truth, he tells the apostles for the last time that he must die. He must die because he is the fulfillment of the Passover. Jesus said, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. He came to make all of the types in the old covenant into their heavenly reality of in the new. Without establishing true Passover before the Father in the Holy Mass, the crucifixion would only be an execution. But Jesus right. first, due to the Israelites taking on the oath, in the curse of death, when they swore on their lives in a blood oath, uh, held their destruction in abeyance, as, as we discussed at the beginning of, of, of this gospel. And he did this until his coming. So until he himself, as a true Isaac, could be sacrificed in taking on the curse, 
in order to free the Jews from it in the same place the sacrifice of Abraham, of Isaac, would have occurred. So this is through that hesed, his, his steadfast love and keeping his promise to Abraham. Uh, therefore, Paul tells us in Romans 9. Now, uh, I want to take a few minutes here, here to read the full context here so we get a good grasp what is going on here when it comes to this coming uh, forth and establishing the Gentile nation into the family of God. So Paul in Romans 9 says, not as though the word of God miscarried, for all are not Israelites that are of Israel. Neither are all they that are of the seed of Abraham, children, but in Isaac shall they see be called. That is to say, not they that are children of the flesh are the children of God, but they that are the children of the promise are accounted for the seed. For this is the word of the promise. According to this time will I come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only she, but when Rebekah also had conceived at once of Isaac, our father. For when the children were not yet born, nor had done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. He's talking about the works of Mosaic law here, but no Gentiles were under. It was said to her, the elder shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice with God? God forbid. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. For the scripture saith to Pharaoh, to this purpose have I raised thee, that I may show my power in thee and that my name may be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore he hath mercy on whom he will, and whom he will he hardeneth. Thou wilt say, therefore to me, why doth he then find fault? For who riseth his, uh, resisteth his will? O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the things formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Or hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath fitted for destruction, that he might show the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, referring to the Gentiles here, which he hath prepared unto glory? Even us, whom also he hath called, not only of the Jews, but also of the Gentiles. As in Osea, he saith, I will call that which is not my people my people, and her that was not beloved, beloved, and her that hath not obtained mercy, one that hath obtained mercy. And it shall be in the place where it was said unto them, You are not my people. There shall be called the sons of the living God. And Isaiah cried out concerning Israel, If the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. For he shall finish his word and cut it short in justice, because a short word shall the Lord make upon the earth. And Isaiah foretold 
unless the Lord of Sabbath had left us a seed, we had been made as Sodom and we had been likened unto Gomorrah. So what then shall we say, that the Gentiles who followed not after justice have obtained justice, even the justice that is of faith? But Israel, by following after the law of justice, is not come unto the law of justice. Well, so, because they sought it not by faith, but as it were of works. That is the Mosaic law, the second legislation. For they stumbled at the stumbling stone. As it was written, behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of scandal, and whoever shall believe in him shall not be confounded. So God made Isaac to be a miraculous birth so that our souls can contemplate the fulfillment of our miraculous birth into the body of Christ from the man of flesh in Adam to the man of spirit in Christ Jesus. It is through baptism that the church became universal and Catholic. To believe is to believe the the entire gospel. So, let's read from Haddock's on uh, on verse uh, two here. Uh, you know that after two days shall be the Pash or the feast of the Pash. The Protestants translate now, the, uh, me, as the me, Passover. Let me interrupt you for a second. Okay, that ahead. is that is actually what uh, Easter is called in most of the world today. Uh, it's it's only in the Western Hemisphere that is called Easter, which means to the east. So uh, this idea that uh, that Easter is taken from uh, some uh, <laughs> yes yeah, pagan goddess is 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 absolute nonsense because it's actually called the Pash in 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 most of the world. Most of the world. All right, go ahead. Please continue. Yeah, in Justin Martyr's first apology, you could sum that up as Satan created paganism to keep people from the Catholic truth. The right. best lie is a half truth. So you see these little half truths embedded all the way all the way through time. And right. by looking at that, you get dearest to God. I mean, they had triune gods. They had food of the God to become one with the God. They had gods who were, you know, associated with trees, you know, with crosses, <laughs> so, over and over and over again. So let's read from Haddock uh, on, on verse 2 here. You know that after two days shall be the Pash, or the Feast of the Pash. The Protestants translate uh, of the Passover. The French shall retain the same word in their language, pacre, I think that's how you say that, <laughs> as the author of the Latin Vulgate and all other Greek versions have done. It is indeed an evident mistake uh, to take Pasha for a Greek word, as um, Mr. Sonso ha has done, who in his note on this place says Pasha in Greek is a passion or suffering. It is certain that the word Pasha or, or Pash is from a Hebrew derivation uh, signifying a passing by or passing over. Yet it must also be observed that the same word, Pasha, has different significations. Sometimes it is put for the Paschal lamb that was sacrificed, as in Luke 22.7, elsewhere for the first day of the Paschal feast in Solemnity, which lasted seven days, as in this place, in Ezekiel 45.21. Again, it is taken for the Sabbath day that happened within the seven days of the Solemnity, 
and see this is John 19:14, and it is also used to signify all the sacrifices that were made during the seven days feast, uh, uh, and the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, informed his disciples of the bloody transactions, which were soon to be uh, perpetrated at Jerusalem, lest they might be disheartened when they saw their master condemned to die on a cross. This was delivered up to death by his heavenly father out of love for man. He is betrayed by Judas for the base lucre, condemned by the priest out of envy and persecuted by the common enemy of mankind, who feared that his empire and reign might be destroyed among men by the preaching of our Redeemer. So not perceiving that man would be freed from his empire more by his death than by his preaching. The origin describes this. The, the chief priest was Caiaphas, and with Caiaphas, the Pharisees and elders plotted on how they would kill Jesus. So it appears that Matthew is telling us that at the same time they were plotting this, Jesus already knowing was telling the apostles of his coming death. And Haddock says of this plot, which included not to kill Jesus on a festival day, uh, says such a day seemed to them at first improper, at least to some of them. But this was overruled when Judas informed them how he could and would put him into their hands on Thursday night. And St. Jerome takes notice that when they said not on the festival, it was not through a motive of religion that they made this objection, but only lest a tumult uh, should happen in his favor among the people. For they looked upon him as a great prophet. Behold how fearful these people are, not of offending God nor of increasing the enormity of their most atrocious crime by committing it on the solemnity of the Passover. Of course, he's being facetious here, but of offending men by raising a tumult, still boiling over with rage. They no sooner found the traitor than yielding to the impulse of their blind fury. They gladly seized the opportunity offered and emulating their victim in the middle of the solemnity though this, their wickedness, was the instrument of the divine dispensation to bring about the greatest good, still they will not go without receiving uh, condemnation, punishment, which the perversity of their wills so richly deserved for murdering innocence itself. And at a time when guilt was accustomed to meet with mercy and forgiveness, St. Chrysostom says, we know that by a de decree of divine providence, what had been so long and so er earnestly sought for by the Jewish prince, uh, by way of an opportunity of murdering the innocent Lamb of God, was not granted to them except on the very feast of the past, which was by God's design that this would happen. For it was only fitting that what had been for such a length of time figuratively promised, the Old Testament types, should be manifestly fulfilled, that the true lamb should, be, should supersede the figurative one, and that by one grand sacrifice, the vast variety of offerings and holocausts should be done away with, which was done by 70 AD. Right. So we're at Matthew 26, 6 through 13, 
And when Jesus was at, was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, there came to him a woman having an alabaster box of precious ointment and poured it on his head as he was at table. And the disciples now, seeing it. Let me interrupt you. Go ahead. Sorry, let me, me ahead. interrupt you for a second. A common mistake that people make is uh, confusing Mary of Magdala with Mary of Bethany. They were two different people. Yes, this 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 is Mary, who is the sister of uh, Lazarus. Yeah, that, this is Mary of Bethany. Yeah. So there came to him a woman, have, a woman having an alabaster box of precious ointment, poured it on his head as he was at table, and the disciples, seeing it, had indignation, saying, "To what purpose is this waste? For this might have been sold for much and given to the poor." And Jesus, knowing it, said to them, Why do you trouble this woman? For she hath wrought a good work upon me. For the poor you have always with you, but me you have not always. For she is pouring this ointment on my body, hath done it for my burial. Amen, I say to you, whosoever this gospel shall be preached in the whole world, that also which she hath done shall be told for a memory of her. So Jesus already knowing this. So the woman was one of Mary's, uh, one of the Marys, Mary, the sister of Lazarus. Uh, she most likely did not know the full nature of her actions, uh, just like you know, in, in the Gospels, mm-hmm. you know, the Gospels are written, and the apostles, being guided by the Holy Spirit, didn't, didn't even understand the depth of what they were writing. In some cases, I believe, and uh, we discussed this earlier. So yeah. John explains that this anointing was done six days before the Pasch. And Matthew says in this place, because he may be relating the betrayal of Judas with the anointing, which is preparation for Jesus' death. So the, the apostles still of carnal minds did not understand that Jesus let it happen as preparation for his death, his burial. So their response shows their lack of understanding. And uh, let's look at this etymology uh, of the word Christ. We're seeing an anointing here basically spiritually and we could also see this in in the preparation for, for the death of course uh the anointed is synonymous with with the translating to greek hebrew mashiach or messiah the title given to jesus of nazareth and old english christe uh, latin christus from greek uh, christos <coughs> excuse me uh <coughs> Mary shows a, a symbol of true anointing, our, our burial preparation. But we also read in uh, Psalms 45, 6 and 7 that it was the Father who anointed the person and the Son. Uh, you hear, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a scepter of uh, uprightness. <coughs> Thou hast loved justice and hated iniquity. Therefore, God, thy God has anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellow. Uh, could I have about three minutes? Uh, I forgot my water. <laughs> I'm getting really dry. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, well, I'll, uh, we'll come back in about three minutes. Yep, we'll be right back, folks. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll find a song to play.
measured in success and I feel like I'm wasting time Oh, I'm scrolling through my mirror I see me comparing my life to yours Feeling like a failure I don't know what to do Lord, I need you And this is my salvation Feel like hot water on my shoulders But it is so heavy I can't stand up on my own My ego and my pride is emboldened I don't want the cross, no I just want the crown But all my sins on my fall's down, yeah And all the pains that I caused I was suffering to the bone, yeah I'm feeling like a failure Please forgive me And Lord, I need you Prophet, who was the most perfect prophet, of course, 
and he goes to the cross as king, the anointed in the line of David. And Second uh, Samuel shows us this anointing of David. But uh, think about these words, bone and flesh. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David in Hebron, saying, Behold, we are thy bone and thy flesh. Moreover, yesterday also and the day before, when Saul was king over us, thou was he that did lead out and bring in, in Israel. And the Lord said to thee, Thou shalt feed my people Israel, and thou shalt be prince over Israel. The ancients also of Israel came to the king of Hebron, and King David made a league with them in Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David to be king over Israel. Across the Old Testament, you have a theme of the bride and the bridegroom. And earlier in the gospel, we showed how Matthew was showing this theme, and yet the, do we see a celebration in, in the marriage? We see the marriage often consummated in sacrifice. So the bride of Adam came from his side. Jesus was pierced in his side, and through his pierced side, the spiritual reality of, of the water, blood, and spirit flows in the true baptism that perpetuates his bride, his church on earth, united to heaven. So Paul writes, that he might sanctify it, cleansing it by the laver in the word of life. So we see the laver in front of the veil fulfilled in baptism. And uh, Paul is writing to uh, those who were all, already baptized, of course, in, in the name singular of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, or what possibly could be uh, the word of life, as Paul's describing it. So Augustine wrote, like a bridegroom, Christ went forth from his nuptial chamber. He came even to the marriage bed of the cross, and since the creature sighing in her breath, he surrendered himself to torment for his bride in a communication of love. In another place, he writes, every celebration of the Eucharist is a celebration of marriage. The church's nuptials are celebrated. The king's son is about to marry a wife, and the king's son is himself the king. And the guests frequenting the marriage are themselves the bride, for all the church is Christ's bride, of which the beginning and first fruits is the flesh of Christ, because there was a bride joined to the bridegroom in the flesh. So we are now entering the, the beginning of the marriage. So Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. His kingdom is a union on earth between an imperfect bride and a perfect groom as his body through uh, the marriage bed of the cross. And Hosea prophecies about this marriage when he wrote, and I will espouse thee to me forever, and I will espouse the me for uh, in justice and in judgment and in mercy and in commensurations. I will espouse thee to me in faith, and thou shalt know that I am the Lord. And it shall come to pass in that day I will hear, saith the Lord. I will hear the heavens, and they shall hear the earth. And the earth shall hear the corn and the wine and the oil, and these shall hear Jezreel. And I will sow her unto me in the earth. I will have mercy on her that was without mercy. And I will say to thee, which was not my people, thou art my people, and they shall say, thou art my God. So, and of course, Paul confirmed this in Romans 9, as we had read earlier. So I wanted to read Romans 9 before, so you get a bigger image of this. As uh, where he said, as an O.C., he saith, I will call that which not my people, my people, 
and her that was beloved, beloved, uh, beloved, and her that had not obtained mercy, one that has obtained mercy. So, and Paul also tells us, husbands love your wives as Christ also loved the church and delivers himself up for it, that he might sanctify it, cleansing it by the lover of the word of life, the lover's baptism, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So also ought men love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever hateth his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, as also Christ does the church, because we are members of him, body of his flesh and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall be two in one flesh. This is a great sacrament, but I speak in Christ and in the church, Paul says. So you can never come to a true understanding of Scripture if you only think of the body of Christ, if Christ is head of the body, is only a metaphor. It is the heavenly reality of the marriage between God and man, and Scripture must be approached with this heavenly reality in mind. When a priest baptizes, it is the head of the body who baptizes. When the priest forgives sins, it is the head of the body who forgives sins. When the priest consecrates the Eucharist, it is the Holy Spirit that makes it holy, and it is the head of the body, our high priest, Melchizedek, in the mystery of Yom Kippur, that spiritually takes his body into the Holy of Holies of heaven to present the true Passover for the sins of the world before the Father. This is the imagery of Hebrews 12:22, where we have come to Mount Zion, to the New Jerusalem, to the church of the firstborn, to the thousands of angels and spirits that just made perfect, and to Jesus Christ, mediator of the new covenant. And this is right. where about what we're about to approach in this Last Supper. Right. So, so what people miss here, Luke, is it? You know, I, I have had conversations with people. I say, well, why was it necessary for Jesus to be baptized? And they look at me with a blank stare because he was, well, for the forgiveness of sins, well, Jesus was without sin. Jesus sanctified the waters. So Jesus took a human act, pouring water over someone's head or immersing someone in water, which is a purely human act, and he added divine power to it. So when you ask somebody, well, why was it necessary for Jesus to suffer? The same reason. He added divine value to it, divine power to it. So everything that Jesus did, whether it was his suffering and death, his baptism, the laying on of hands, uh, everything that he did took human action and added divine action to it. So, so Jesus' life was fully human and fully divine. And every action that he took was the action of someone who is fully human and fully divine. Well, that is also true in the formation of his church, Luke. He created a church, and that church is a divine institution and a human institution at the same time. So how God works divine action through frail human beings you know, and our, and our Protestant brothers and sisters, they reject this and they say, well, 
you know, God would never leave the 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 authority of His church uh, to to human beings. But then they'll turn around and they'll use the Bible that was given to them by that very church, written, translated, canonized, indexed by that very same church. And they'll use that to try to prove that the church is not a human and a divine institution. So they, they, they chase their tails around in circles. And if you truly understand the sacraments and you truly understand the church and you truly understand the means of salvation, it is God's divine action through the cooperation of human beings the same way that grace works in the soul of every one of us. I mean, it, it's it's very plain to see how he has laid out this this template for us to follow. Yeah. And we understand the church is the supreme sacrament. The church is Christ. He became sin who knew no sin. So he became sin so that we may be justified in him as his body. He wasn't sin on the cross because he was the perfect lamb of sacrifice on the cross. So he became sin when he married a sinful bride. And this isn't just metaphorical. This is the heavenly reality. This is why all these sacraments are are sacramental, physical signs that give spiritual grace. I think the big mistake that they make, Luke, over and over again on on any multitude of things, and I think this is why it's caused 40-something thousand denominations, they make the mistake of thinking that in order to understand the truth, we have to be able to comprehend that truth. Uh, Human minds can't comprehend divine things. We can only accept them as truth. No matter how hard we try, we are not going to be able to comprehend the idea that Mary gave birth to her own creator. We're not going to be able to comprehend uh, things like eternity. We're not going to be able to comprehend the the mind of God. So a lot of these things that we have to accept, here's that word, on faith, because our minds can't apprehend them. Unless you become like little children. Yeah, amen. Little children listen to a benevolent father, knowing knowing he is right, without even understanding half the things he tells us to do. <clears throat> right. So we're at Matthew sixteen, uh, Matthew twenty six fourteen through sixteen. Then went one of the twelve, who was called Judas Iscariot, to the chief priest and said to them, "What will you give me, and I will deliver him unto you?" But they appointed him thirty pieces of silver. And from thence he sought opportunity to betray him. Now, Judas, who hates that the expensive perfume would be used to be put on Jesus, then goes to the Pharisees who were already plotting Jesus' death. Judas asked the Pharisees, what would you give me? He is turning from uh, Christ through a, through, a, through a desire of materialism and selfish desires. Um, he is living in a lower sensual nature, even, even though he was in the presence of the Savior of the world. So Moses had to remove his sandals because he walked on holy ground, and this man who touched the face of God was seen as miracles, even raising people from the dead. 
shows us how damaging our, our lower nature can be. It shows how damaging just being separated from grace can be. And a perfect example of, of, of money being the root of all evil, I, I guess, you know, if you look at this. So he then confirmed in his own mind his need to betray almost as expediency or usefulness at this time. 30 pieces of silver would have been the price of, of a common slave. Hmm. It's uh, you know, It reminds me of uh, of uh, Esau, who sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. Just unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we read on, and on the first day of Azimes, uh, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, "Where wilt thou that we prepare for thee to eat the pash?" But Jesus said, Go ye into the city to a certain man, and say to him, The master saith, My time is near at hand. With thee I make the pash with my disciples. This Azimes, our first day of unleavened bread. Matthew is tying the, the true Passover and the crucifixion to the feast of unleavened bread. The whole week of Passover is the feast of unleavened bread. For seven days, the Jews were told by God to remove all leavened bread from their households. The 15th day of the month is called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So Haddock says regarding this passion, the Passover was the most solemn rite of the old law. When God ordered the Israelites to sprinkle the blood of the lamb upon their doorpost, it was solely with a view of signifying that the blood of the true lamb was to be the distinctive mark as uh, many as should be saved. Everything was mysteriously and prophetical. A bone of the lamb was not to be broken, and they broke not the arms or legs of Jesus Christ on the cross. The lamb was to be free from blemish to express the perfect sanctity of Jesus Christ, the immaculate lamb of God. The paschal lamb was to be sacrificed and eaten because Christ was to suffer and die for us, and unless we eat his flesh, we have we shall have no life in us. The doorposts of the Israelites were to be sprinkled with blood, that the destroying angel might pass over them. For with the blood of Christ, our souls are to be purified, that sin and death may not prevail against us. In every house was eaten the whole lamb, and Christ at communion is received whole and entirely by every faithful soul. The manner in which it was eaten shows the proper disposition for Christians when they receive the Blessed Sacrament. The roasting by fire expresses divine charity, the unleavened bread sincerity and truth, and a good conscience, the bitter herbs repentance and contrition for sin, the girded loins and shod feet, the restraint upon our passions and lusts, and a readiness to follow the rules of the gospel. The staff, our mortal pilgrimage, and that having no lasting dwelling here, we should make the best of our way to our true country, the heavenly Canaan. On this day, the Passover was to be eaten at least by a part of the people, according to St. Matthew, St. Mark, and St. Luke, according to some by the Galileans, for according to St. John, it appears that the priests and the Jews properly so called such as the wealth in Judea, did not emulate it till the next day. But we have here again to remark that the Jews began their day from sunset to the uh, of the previous day. 
You know, I can't understand how you can look at this with the uh, through the eyes of typology, through the eyes of, of the Old Testament is the New Testament uh, concealed. How you can look at the Passover and the depth of the Passover and not see it pointing forward to the Eucharist. I, I don't understand. It, it's it's mind-boggling to me how you don't make the connect, connection. Now, somebody would not be able to make the connection. And the bread of the presence that always needs to be before the Father that was in the holies. Right. The holies is actually symbolic for the church because the laver in front of the holies is the bronze laver, which Paul refers to. And we are saved by this bronze laver is fulfilled in baptism. And he says, whoever hateth his own flesh, and he says, a new and living way through the veil, which is his flesh. So how did they enter the veil? They first washed in the laver. They entered the veil, the flesh of Christ, into the holies where what's there? The bread of the presence that must always be before the Father. This is my body. So we're at Matthew twenty six nineteen through 25. And the disciple did as Jesus appointed to them, and they repaired the pash. But when it was evening, he sat down with his 12 disciples. And whilst they were eating, he said, Amen, I say to you, that one of you is about to betray me. And they, being very much troubled, began everyone to say, Is it I, Lord? But he answering said, He that dippeth his hand with me in the dish, he shall betray me. The Son of Man indeed goeth, as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man shall be betrayed. It were better for him if that man had not been born. And Judas that betrayed him answered, said, Is it I, Rabbi? He saith to him, Thou hast said it. So the apostles would have prepared a lamb, wild lettuce, and unleavened bread. In Luke's Gospel, he says, When the hour has come, so the Jews measured a day from sunset to, uh, to sunset. So this most likely occurred after sunset, and since Korban was celebrated, the preparation of the lamb most likely included the sacrifice of the lamb in the temple before the meal, uh, the sacrifice that the Torah mandates the Israelites to ritually slaughter on the evening Passover and eat on the first night of uh, the holiday with bitter herbs and matzo, which would be the unleavened bread. And it was first offered on, on the night before the Israelites, Israelites left Egypt. And we can see Egypt as a symbol for sin. The blood was placed on the lentil and doorpost in the sign of the cross. And the family members of God ate the entire lamb so the angel of death would pass over in a type so that they would be freed from sin. Crossing the Red Sea is a symbol for baptism in the blood of Christ. First John tells us, you know, who is he that overcomes the world? When he, uh, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God, this is he that came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit that testifieth that Christ is the truth. And there are three that give testimony in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. And there are three that give testimony in earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three are one. We are called to believe in the water, spirit, and blood of baptism. So at the supper, Jesus tells his apostles the betrayal and tells Judas to do what he needs to do. 
So Judas leaves before the consecration and the establishment of the new covenant priesthood here. And the lamb was to be eaten standing, according to Exodus. So most likely Jesus, the, the apostles, stood to eat the lamb, then sat to eat the matzah. And uh, Jesus over and over again explained to his apostles that he must die and even showed how it was the Pharisees who would bring about his death. But then at the Last Supper, he told them that one of the 12 would be involved in his bringing about his death and betrayal. So they all began to question their own loyalty uh, because it was their Messiah that was telling them this. So they had no doubt in his words but questioned their own loyalty due to his uh, authoritative words. Uh, everyone said, it, it, is it I, Lord? That included Judas, who knew it was him, but proceeded to amplify his own lie. And we'll, we'll go to uh, Haddox again here. Is it I, Rabbi? After the other disciples had put their questions, and after our Savior had finished speaking, Judas at length ventures to inquire of himself with his usual hypocrisy. He wishes to cloak his wickedness, his designs, by asking a similar question with the rest. Origin responds, it is remarkable that Judas did not ask, is it I, Lord, but is it I, Rabbi, to which our Savior replied, thou hast said it, which answer might have been spoken in so low a voice as not to perfectly to be heard by all the company. Uh, Rabanus here, uh, hence it was that Peter beckoned to St. John to learn more positively, positively <laughs> the person. St. Chrysostom says, justly remarks, the patience and reserve of our Lord, who by his great meekness and self-possession under the extremes of ingratitude, injustice, and blasphemy, shows how we ought to bear with the malice of others and forget all personal injuries. Hmm. Easier said than done, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it is interesting, though, uh, and I, it's not the first time I've heard it pointed out, but it is interesting that um, Judas is the only one that, that calls him rabbi, and this is uh, just a testament that Judas didn't have uh, true faith. He, he, he never really believed in who Jesus really was. Uh never accepted him as as uh the son of god on so, on some level anyway and it just it's striking because this in the context of what you said earlier he saw the miracles um and yet and yet his his uh lower nature as you put it allowed him not to or caused him to not see that it was it was God Himself that He was uh, celebrating the Passover with. Amazing. Yes. yes. So we're at Matthew twenty six twenty six to twenty nine. And whilst they were at supper, Jesus took bread and blessed and broke and gave it to his disciples and said, "Take ye and eat. This is my body." And taking the chalice, he gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, "Drink ye all of this." For this is my blood of the New Testament, which shall be shed for many unto remission of sins. And I say to you, I will not drink from henceforth of this fruit of the vine 
until that day when I shall drink with you anew in the kingdom of my Father. Now, it would be the last time Jesus would drink while in mortal flesh, is, is one understanding. But Jesus began to enter his Father's glory when from the cross he said, I thirst. Uh, the word made flesh came to a Passover and said, I strongly desire to celebrate this Passover with you, with us, with all of us. God in the flesh, after putting in place the Passover 13 years uh, earlier, came to fulfill and participate as the true Passover, as we discussed earlier, to truly see this and contemplate its majesty and holiness is it, just uh, – it's amazing. And mm-hmm. he does so now as the head of the body and mediator of the new covenant. And the third cup of the setter, uh, the, the setter feast here that, uh, that was going on, is a Thanksgiving cup. He gave thanks, our Eucharistasis, and said, this is my blood and new covenant. Do this in memory of me. Agnomnesis in, in, in Greek uh, uh, meaning offer this memorial offering. Uh, the word memory in Greek. So <clears throat> we do so until it comes again. Paul says, for as often as you shall eat this bread and drink this cup, you'll show the death of the Lord. This is showing the death of the Lord to the Father until he comes again. He said he will not drink of the vine and again until he entered his Father's glory. At the garden, he said, let this cup pass. <clears throat> oh, one more person. Uh, the last thing he did from the cross is partake of the fourth cup, fulfilling the true purpose of the setter. The fourth cup, the Jews would repeat the words, I will be your God and you'll be my people. The fourth cup is God's. When you read Psalms 22, which begins with, uh, why have you forsaken me? And ends with, I will declare my name in a great church. Remember Amos and Paul confirming the prophecy of Amos uh, of the Gentiles entering the church. I will spouse you to me forever. I will spouse you to me in justice. I will call those my people and not my people, and they shall say thou art my God. So from the cross, the Adam of life, giving birth to his bride, said, it is consummated. The marriage is consummated in sacrifice for the bride, and this is what Augustine was explaining. So what must have it been like when at the Passover, Jesus strongly desired to celebrate he showed the apostles how his body and blood is real food in the context of the setter. When he began to reveal his words of John 6 to them, my flesh is real food. The bread is real food. Can Jesus, who is the word that sustains time and matter in existence, place his glorified flesh that transcends the world into the material elements of bread and wine and in a universe designed around faith, keep all the material elements of bread and wine before our senses. Of course he can. He's God. Like the church fathers said, God said it, so we believe it. And his primary purpose gives us a deeper reason to believe. This is the true Passover for the general redemption of the world before the Father until the end of time. Jesus then gave the apostles, the first priest of the Catholic Church through the Holy Spirit, the ability to do the same. Just like Protestants choose the words of the Pharisees over God's when it came to man through the power of the Holy Spirit being able to forgive sins, 
they chose the words of the crowds and followed John 666 and left and couldn't take it. Jesus then said, will you also leave to his apostles? Peter, the first pope, responds, where shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. These words, my flesh is true food, my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him, and I will raise him up on the last day. You cannot partake of the altar spiritually until you are baptized into the chosen people, the holy nation, the royal priesthood. You cannot partake of the graces of the altar unless you come to the altar with a sacrifice of pure heart, with a pure heart. And the sprinkling of the blood that speaks better than that of Abel is the cleansing of venial sins at every holy mass. And in faith and confession, in in confession of a contrite heart is, is the only way mortal sins are destroyed so that you can return to the altar through the mercy of God. They were dedicated to the doctrine, the narrow road of a systematic theology of a sacramental life, the way. And in this life is all that you need for the assurance of salvation. As Paul said, if you hold fast to what I have preached to you. Yeah. Amen. Um, we're out of time, Luke. We're going to have to wrap it up there. And um, maybe what I'll do is next week, maybe I'll schedule a two and a half hour show. So hopefully we can wrap the whole thing up. Uh, it might be a little bit longer than normal, but hopefully we can wrap everything up next Monday. Sounds good. All right. Would you uh, end us with a quick closing prayer? Again, we're going to pray with our uh, uh, with our Protestant brothers and sisters. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. All right. God bless you. And like I said, what we're going to try to do is next week, we're going to try to go extra long and, and wrap it all up on December 11th. So until then, God bless you. Have a great week, Luke. You too.